Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of important emerging ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On this podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Paul Bloom. He's an internationally recognized expert on the psychology of child development, social reasoning, and morality, and the author of numerous books, including Just Babies, The Origins of Good and Evil. His newest book is called Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. Welcome to Think Again, Paul. Thanks for having me here, Jason. So the original title of the book was Against Puppies, I understand, but then the uh, the editor thought that was a little too extreme. Is that right? We went through Against Kittens, Against World Peace. Um, we settle on Against Empathy, it's the, most, <laughs> the most provocative of all possible titles. I mean, I, I think it might be helpful to unpack at the beginning, you know, what it is you mean by Against yeah. Empathy, because obviously it engenders a lot of misunderstanding. And. I feel the saving grace of the cover is the subtitle, which is the case for rational right. compassion, right. Right. which maybe reassure people that I'm not a raving psychopath. Um, but it's in such a small font that a lot of people might miss it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. Um, so, so people mean different things by empathy, and one problem is sometimes people just use the term empathy to mean everything good, everything right. kind. I'm not against that. Right. Um, and at the same time, I'm not the language police. I don't actually care if you use the word empathy the same way that I use it, so long as you understand the idea. And the idea, right. what I use empathy for, as many psychologists and philosophers and neuroscientists use it, is sharing the feelings of other people. Right. Experiencing what you believe that they experience. So if you, if you were suddenly in pain, and I looked at you and I felt your pain, I'd be in an empathic state. Right, and you know we know empathy does a lot of good. I know in that situation, if people study this experimentally, I, uh, I'd be more likely to help you if right. I if I felt empathy for you. But I argue in my book that empathy has many downsides. Right, and so and strictly speaking, I guess it's not really possible to feel somebody else's pain exactly. Right, the same our brain lights up in sympathy and or in analogy in a way, but we don't feel exactly somebody else's feelings. I think that's exactly right. One of the results from neuroscience is kind of cool, which is to some extent the same parts of your brain light up when you feel empathy for somebody as would light up if you yourself were having that experience. So if we were to okay. mildly burn your hand, you'd feel a certain sort of brain activation. If I was to watch you mildly burn your hand, I'd feel something similar to that brain activation. But at the same time, and Adam Smith points this out in the 1700s, right. it's not the same. Right. You, you can if my if my back aches, watching you get a massage isn't going to solve my problem. Right. And of course, it always based on it's always based on my belief about what you're feeling. I don't actually have telepathy. Right. So I have to sort of make an assumption about how you're feeling. One nice example somebody told me the other day is apparently when you're stabbed, it doesn't feel like being cut. If you're really stabbed, it feels more like an electric shock. Okay. But not knowing that, if I watched you be stabbed, my empathic response would be as, oh, I'm cut. Right. I feel like that. Okay. So I feel like I'm going to wade into very complicated territory really quickly. But like basically, you do advocate for rational compassion, which is you know, to use what I think you refer to in the book as 
cognitive empathy sometimes, right? As opposed to, or is that wrong? Cognitive compassion as opposed to emotional. So I make a three-part distinction. Okay, all right, all right, and, and, yeah. And I know it's the scariest sentence in the world, I make a three-part distinction, <laughs> but, but it's not so bad. Cognitive empathy refers to an understanding, to knowing what's on, going on, and understanding what's going on in someone else's head. Right. So, so if you're thinking, oh, I wish I was someplace else, or, or you're hungry or whatever, and I just know that. Right. That's cognitive empathy. And I think some of that's really important to be a good person. You're not going to be a good person if you can't understand other people. You can't even buy a good birthday present for somebody if you don't know what's going on in their head, what they want. Right. So there's cognitive empathy. There's emotional empathy, which is what we've been talking about, and that's what I'm against. And then there's compassion. And compassion is the term I give and other people give for kindness and, and, and care and wanting you to thrive right. without necessarily feeling your suffering. Right, right. So, if you're bored, and I empathically feel your boredom, that's empathy. But if you're bored and I feel, oh, this poor Chinook, I hope he, he gets better, let me try to entertain him, <laughs> that could be compassion. So does compassion require cognitive empathy? I mean, do I need to, I, I need to have some sense of what you're feeling? Like, I need to think I know what you're feeling in order to feel compassion for you, maybe, no? They could be connected, but I don't think there's an essential link between the two. I could feel compassion okay. for you, this, this diffuse compassion where I just care about you. Right. I, just, I, I, I feel love for you, I want you to do well in your life. Right, right. If something bad were to happen, I'd want it to end. And I could be infused with my compassion without necessarily getting into your head, certainly right. without feeling your suffering. So you use a really good example, one that I like. Um, I love this quote. You say, you don't need empathy to realize that it's wrong to let a child drown. Any normal person would just wade in and scoop up the child without bothering with any of this empathic hoo-ha. So by the time you sat there and thought like, oh, I'm, you know, this poor child, he must be scared, etc., the kid would be drowned. Yeah. Yes, and I had to Google the word hoo-ha to get that, <laughs> that, that, the hyphenization exactly right. But that's true. So, some, so sometimes people hit me with, well, why would I ever help somebody if I right. don't feel empathy for them? I don't feel their pain. Right. But if you think about it for a minute, we do, we do so all the time. I mean, you might write a check for a charity for starving children without ever thinking, I wonder what it feels like to be starving. I mean, right. you could feel that way, but it's hardly necessary. And the classic philosophical example of you pass by a drowning child and you go in to save them. You could, if you wanted to, experience drowning, imagine what it's like, but it's ridiculous to assume you'd have to. You might just know, well, you know, dead children, that's awful. Sure. Maybe if saving the life of a child would be a good thing, I'm going to do the good thing. But probably at some point you felt your heart has been tugged at the sight of a child, you know, and maybe even in that moment you're like, child, ah, you yep. know, so that's, I don't, maybe that's not exactly empathy, but that's something happening in my heart that's perhaps responsible for my action, you know. So I think you're right, and this is why I sort of want to cleave apart the two parts of my subtitle, Rational Compassion. Okay. So my argument is, when it comes to deciding what the right thing to do is, mm. when making a moral decision, we shouldn't be swayed by empathy or by compassion or by anger, shame, lust. We should do it rationally. Right. A cost-benefit calculation, some sort of moral principle and so on. But it's long been known, and I really agree with this, that you need some sort of motivational kick in the pants. I could be watching the kid drown and say to myself, gee, the right thing to do is to rescue the kid for a million reasons and not do anything. Just watch the kid drown because I know the right thing to do, but that's not enough. Right. You need something to make you 
do it. And there you get to things like the pang, the feeling I'd feel like a terrible person if I didn't help. Right. And there I would argue that the most reliable force for good is compassion in that case. Yeah, because the sort of um, strictly rational calculation could lead you astray in that instance in the sort of the way that Dickens likes to make fun yep. of, you know, like you could be like, well, half of humanity grows up to be awful and therefore, you know, why take the risk? You know? Yes. And also, <laughs> and also you could really say, you know, you imagine some sort of imaginary psychopath, real people don't right. work this way, who watches the kid drown and you say, oh my God, why didn't you save the kid? It would have been the right thing to do, don't you understand? And the psychopath said, yeah, I fully understand it would have been the right thing to do. Right. By any grounds, it would have been the right thing to do. It would have made the world a better place. It would have alleviated suffering. The kid had a right to that. A million reasons. But I just stood there. Right. And what the psychopath is missing is the right motivation. So what I'm not arguing for is an entirely Mr. Spock, cold-blooded approach to life. It won't work. What I'm arguing is a cold-blooded approach to moral decision-making and then certain emotions guide your behaviors. Primarily Spock, but a little bones a little, in there. A little bit of the central McCoy yeah. getting it <laughs> So, um, yeah, okay, so, yeah, you gave this example of, in the book of a Yale professor, I believe, who goes and volunteers in soup kitchens, yeah. and talked about how that person was saying that she, I don't know, she likes the feeling, is yeah. that right? So I've thought about this stuff, right? And I have this idea in my mind, which I've never actually had an opportunity to test. You know, I have this belief, I think, that like if I went and, for example, worked with prisoners, uh, helping them to, uh, teaching them writing or something, working with them on their writing, that that would make me a better person. Not mm -hmm. for having done it, but just by the hopefully psychologically transformative act of doing that over time, that engaging in that interaction through a mechanism that I guess you could really only call empathy, like coming to understand where these folks were coming yeah. from, would make me a better person and thus make me better able to make rationally compassionate yep. decisions in the future. Do you think that is untrue, maybe true, don't know, should be tested? Maybe true. So the point about the Yale professor yeah. wasn't that she was doing anything wrong. Right. But in fact, she was doing something very good. She was helping people. Right. And if the alternative was that and staying home and watching Game of Thrones, good choice. Yeah. My point was just that she was doing this instead of donating money, but she had a Yale professor's salary. And the money would have done a lot more good. Now suppose she said to me, as you're saying to me, this is just a means to an end. By, by my contact with these people, I'll understand more about the world. It will nurture kind attitudes in me. And then invigorated by that and enlivened and, and, and informed by that experience, I will go on to do great things. Right. And I'd say, sounds great. Like, I, I, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but, but the plan yeah. sounds great. So you might say, for instance, if I donated money by just going to my website and sending in money and, and did it that way, I'd quickly get bored of it and I would never do anything good right. again. Right. And I'd say, well, then don't do that. Go to the, go to the soup kitchen. Right. I'm not a full utilitarian. I'm lapsed in certain ways. I'm, I'm, hesitant <laughs> in certain, utilitarian. I'm, I'm hesitant in certain ways. But I have this utilitarian streak. And, and I'm sort of, my feeling is when somebody wants to do good, which is a really good thing, they should try to do the most good. Yeah. And it might be complicated. So Peter Singer, for instance, says, you really want to do good in the world? Don't go to the Peace Corps. Don't work in a soup kitchen. Become a hedge fund manager. Right. Become a hedge fund manager, get sacks and sacks of money, and then send the money off to where it's needed. And people like freak out and they say, oh my God, that doesn't sound very 
nice. <laughs> but Singer says, I don't care about nice, I care about consequences. So your example is sort of a sweeter example, saying, I'm going to go read for prisoners, not because I feel that this is the most bang for the buck, but this will make me into a better person, whereupon I will do great things. And, right. and so it sounds good to me. Well, yeah, I think the objection to the Singer example is an, an assumption, based probably for most people on an assumption that going to Wall Street and making tons of money would make you a worse person such that once you got there, you might not give the money away, you know, right? And that's, and that, that's true, and that's, that's the moral risk. So, you know, what Singer might say is, even if we lost 20% of our hedge fund managers, we'll still be better off than if everybody went and joined the Peace Corps. But what if we lost 90% of them? Right. Yeah, you got it. Those, those, those are the sort of cold-blooded questions that you have to ask. I mean, it raises some broader questions that take us even outside the domain of morality. A friend of mine, the philosopher Laurie Paul, talks about transformative experiences. These are experiences that change you in ways that you could never have anticipated. Mm. So her example is religious conversion, becoming a vampire, fanciful example, having kids as a real example. Okay. But the problem of launching yourself into a transformative experience, which you may be doing with your reading to prisoners is, you don't know what you'll be as you come out the other side. Right. And you don't know whether you'll retain the same interests that you had and goals you had initially. Right. You're just, you're taking, you're experimenting with yes. your own life. Well, and I guess from a psych research standpoint, it would be pretty difficult to study whether those transformative moves actually transform people or not. I mean, not, you know, the expense of longitudinal research being one thing, but... It'd be hard, right? <laughs> it, it, like, what would constitute transformation? I guess you'd have to set up parameters. It, it would be hard. It's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> so, so take a case of having children. Right. We are different people after we have children. I know mm. I, I was a different person. Yes. And honestly, I was a different person in some ways that my older self uh, would have disliked. <laughs> you know, I became a lot more stay at home and kind of more my political attitudes changed and my moral attitudes changed. But my older self did go on that trajectory willingly. Right. And the scope of the change, it's funny, Lori Paul has, uh, has uh, motivated a lot of people to do research on these questions. Okay. And I think they are, in the end, empirical questions, but they're, they're very difficult and very deep. You know, the last thing I wanted to ask about, I think, before we get to the surprise clips, is like Sam Harris, your friend who you've, you know, podcasted with before that I've heard. Um, he, he also wades into difficult areas or potentially misunderstood areas. I wonder, you know, in doing this, did you go in from the beginning with your eyes open as to how this might be misunderstood, mischaracterized? And is it like worth it on balance always to go into that kind of territory, even if it might be completely misunderstood or you might be attacked as being the like defender of heartlessness or something? It's a good question. I mean, there are individual dispositions at work here, which is some people love conflict. They love the hurly-burly of, uh, of even kind of almost violent disagreement. <laughs> right. I'm actually not one of those people. I, I have a fairly high tolerance towards nastiness by strangers. I tend to laugh it, it off. But I don't actually like unpleasant conflict, and I don't like a certain level of animus directed at me. So Sam Harris has a much, much stronger stomach for it <laughs> than, than I do. But on the other hand, I'll just say two things. One thing is, my book has gotten some weird reactions, including anti-Semitic tweets, which seem to be the newest thing from 2016. Right. Another thing yes. we have to, yes. to be thankful for about <laughs> the year that's gone by. Indeed. Um, 
Sometimes people misunderstand my argument. They read the two-word title and they freak out. But for the most part, I have been gratified by the positive and engaged responses to my work. And I'm not saying that that means everybody agrees with me. Right. But what I'm saying is they listen to the argument. They read the subtitle, then they go on and they read a bit of the book, or they listen to me on a podcast, or right. they read one of my shorter articles, and then they say, oh, wow, I never saw the world that way, I agree with you. Or, no, you're missing this, or you, you forgot about this. In some way, it's been immensely cheering. That's great. So I have these dialogues with my colleagues, psychologists, philosophers, neuroscientists, and they're fascinating. But also, I have these dialogues with people online, through email, and so on, who are not academics, but who are savvy enough to simply make sense of their arguments, reach into their personal experience or their analytic skills, and say, oh, I disagree with you on that, or you're missing this, or, or what about, check out that study and see what it says. And it, to me, it's, it's very cheering. It's one of the cheering things you find in the internet, how democratic things could be, where you know, a while ago, I'd just be communicating with my colleagues. And now, right. I'm communicating with a much broader range of people. And with a few exceptions, some of them comical, I've been very pleased with the responses I've been getting. Yeah, and I will say, you know, having read the book, that you are very careful to address, and very funny about addressing one by one, you know, the possible objections and real objections people have raised. and. You know, particularly the example that you gave of Newtown sticks with me. Yeah. You know, that after that school shooting, which was absolutely horrific and, you know, which you recognize obviously as such, you know, there was this incredible outpouring of like stuffed animals and stuff to the town that became like a, like a management nightmare for them. They got much more yep. stuff than they could possibly do anything with. For children who sadly were already gone while there were so many other children in the process of dying elsewhere around the world. And that's, and that's one example. And there's, there's worse examples. There's one, um, I forget where this comes from, but it's, it was a, a journalist writing about aid. And she writes about Sierra Leone and she asks the warlords, why do you chop off the limbs of children? You know, why do you do this? And the response was essentially, we do this for you. When we do things like this, NGOs and Western countries come to our area. They pay us taxes, which right. is how we support ourselves. But if we don't have atrocities, you guys don't come. And, and this is like a dramatic example of how our empathic, very well-meaning feelings could be exploited right. by bad agents. And that we're better off stepping back and using a more rational approach. I think, I think real things right. are at stake. You know, when some people think about empathy, they think about charity. I, more and more I think about war and violence. I think about the use of empathy to call attention to victims and then catalyze aggression against certain groups. Right. So I just think we're playing for high stakes here. And I might not be right in all of my arguments. Right. I think there's some places where I'm hesitant and some places where I could be corrected. But I certainly think the project is well worth carrying out of carefully examining how we're making moral decisions and try to make them better. Okay. Well. That's, now we're going to watch some videos? That's great. I think now, yeah, let's watch some surprise videos and see, see where they take us. So, video one. It's Juanita Rilling, and uh, the video is called, and she's the director of the U.S. Aid Center for International Disaster Information. And the video is called, How Giving to Disaster Relief Can Do More Harm Than Good. There are two aspects to every donation. There is the 
emotional spiritual side which is all good and there's the uh, practical material side which is very tricky the emotional spiritual side is people giving to people who are hurting which is spiritually evolved and civilization saving that is all really good but a donation is a material thing in a situation where material things have to be prioritized there's no emotion in humanitarian logistics anything that is not needed gets in the way and so people's donations can actually prevent people on the ground from getting the help that they need. After a major disaster, there really are no flat, dry spaces to put things. So if it's raining used clothing and canned food and bottled water, it's in the elements because there really is no climate controlled storage after a disaster, not for a long time. If there is, it's used for medicines. So all of this donated goods, these donated goods, sit in the elements and they degrade, the clothing gets moldy, the cans open up, these big piles become a haven for rats and snakes and therefore a health hazard for anyone who has to deal with them. So all of these resources that are used to manage unneeded donations are being taken basically from survivors. And after the tornado in Moore, Oklahoma, a very generous donor offered 28 truckloads of new furniture to the people of Moore, Oklahoma. The relief workers were like, dude, that is so wonderful of you, but can you wait? Because right now, there are no houses. But he was excited about his gift. People get very excited when, they're, they, when they want to give something they know is special. So up to Moore came the 28 truckloads, and all of that furniture needed to be warehoused. So that's money that comes away from building people's houses. The best way to help survivors of any disaster event is, to, is through cash donations to the relief and charitable organizations who are working directly in disaster-affected communities. That is because cash donations enable relief organizations to meet needs as they change. And when supplies are purchased locally, they are fresh and familiar to survivors. They're purchased in just the right quantities, and they don't require the heavy transportation costs and fees. They're delivered quickly and there's enough for everyone. They really, cash donations really are the best donation to give. I'm thinking as I'm hearing this that like, empathy can be selfish. What I'm doing is sort of getting off on the dopamine rush of like, I must do something, I have done something, I'm a superhero, you know? I think that's exactly right. This is, <laughs> this, this is a nicely timed video, it nicely <laughs> yeah. illustrates what, what, what you and I have been talking about where Sometimes the best intentions could lead to, to bad effects. And right. of, course, of course, the solution isn't, well, then don't try to do anything. The right. solution is try to do things which are effective. The one thing I'll disagree with about the person in the video is, and, and she's somebody who's on the ground, who really knows this stuff, is really working, and she's a much nicer person than I am. <laughs> so she starts by saying, the emotional, spiritual side, that's great, wouldn't say anything bad about it, all to be encouraged and everything like that. Right. But then she goes on and said, and, 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 ex and if you listen to the data she gives and the story she gives, it's not great. The man who insisted his furniture be given right away, despite right. The, the, the difficulty it caused other people, wasn't being wonderful, shouldn't be praised for that. He was being selfish. Well, but the action's not great. Like, if indeed what he wants is actually on some deeper level to really help other people, right? If it's not all just, I want to feel good about myself, but if there's some element in there of like, I have this impulse, I feel bad for these folks, yeah? That's, that's reasonably good, no? I mean, and then, and then, you know, it's the action that he takes that isn't so good because he didn't really think it through, and then he was 
kind of a jerk about it when they told him to wait. You know? Right. So I would make a distinction. <laughs> there's there's all sorts of things where I'm sure you and I have been involved in giving money and trying to do things which help. I've given canned goods for different things. Sure. And maybe it makes the world worse. And we're not to be blamed. We had good intentions. We thought this would right. make the world better. Um, we were just mistaken. And you know, just the intentions were good. The goals didn't work out. But what about people who, like this, the furniture man, who have been told, no, don't do this. You, you are going to cost us money. What's up with him saying, no, I insist. I want my buzz and I want it now. <laughs> And you know, I, I think to some extent, it's a little shocking. That yeah. It's a little shocking. And <laughs> the, the same thing happened in Newtown. So, so after after the massacre, people sent all sorts of stuff to Newtown. Right. Plush toys and everything. You know, it's a very rich town. And there's other places in Connecticut that really could have used this, and they had to warehouse them. And so then they said to, to the very organization, said, "Stop sending us this stuff. It's wonderful. You're very kind. Send it to kids who really need it." And people refused. People said, no, we're going to send it. I'm going to send it to you whether you want it or not. Wow. And so. You don't think that wasn't a situation where they just didn't get the message? Like, you know, like. In, the initially, it was for some. <laughs> right. But some, but some people simply insisted, <laughs> okay. insisted on doing it. Some people will insist on, on trying to intervene when they're told it doesn't make any difference or yeah, makes yeah, things yeah. worse. And then what I wonder is, again, there are honest mistakes, which I'm sure everybody, including you and me, have been involved in. Right. But in cases like that, I think it's, it, it makes it clear that the, that the motivation isn't to make the world a better place. Right. It's to scratch an itch, to feel good about yourself. Sure. What's interesting and problematic from the standpoint of, of non-empathy-based philanthropy is that we're actually moving in a direction toward more kind of system one thinking. Mm -hmm. All of these organizations are trying to take advantage of the immediacy of Facebook and texting and whatever to make people instantaneously able to respond to things because if they have to think about it too much, they just might not do it, you yes. know? Yes, and, there's, there's, <laughs> and, and, and so we're in this perverse situation that a new crisis immediately causes an influx of money to the crisis because it's new, because it hits novelty, even though, you know, the water's still bad in Flint, Michigan, even though kids are still dying of starvation in Africa. If something new comes in, boom, there's this arms race right. to try to capture our attention. I think you're right with Facebook or social media, there, there's a lot of system one thinking. I just like to be optimistic that the effective altruism movement, which is a very system two organization, right. is making some toehold. It's, it's going to get to be a point where if you say to me, oh, I've just donated such and so charity. Right. Instead of me saying, you're just this great person, I love you, you should feel very proud of yourself, I'm going to say, and so tell me, how does that make a difference? Right. And, and if we start getting ourselves in the mindset of saying, how will this make the world a better place, that sort of cultural change yeah. could really be important. Yeah, it, so effective altruism, I, I went and I took a look at that. Was that started by Singer, or is he just involved in it in some way, Peter Singer? Or? I know he's involved with it. Okay. I'm not, I, I, don't, I think that the movement itself may have been inspired by Singer, but was not started by him. So, but yeah, I went and I took a look at that. And my fear, or look, if the kind of instantaneous, ill-considered outpourings of charity are doing more harm than good on balance. Like if someone if someone did the math and it's like, on the whole, it's yeah. just doing much worse yeah. than good. My fear is that you remove that from the equation, you remove that impulsivity, and then most people just aren't gonna bother to go take the time to go read the Effective Altruism website to then make the next step to donate, you know. It's an empirical question. Again, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and again, a sort of utilitarian in me says, <laughs> If effective, 
if effective altruism diverts people from doing other emotionally based good things, we should shut it down. <laughs> it, is, it, right. is, it is effective altruism is sort of uh, uh, refuted itself by being non-effective. Right, right, um, right. But there are mechanisms. So many people, for instance, have automatic withdrawal from their salaries. Of for certain charities, right? Because they recognize, well, maybe maybe next month I'm really not going to feel like it. So I'm going to be smart, right? I can still cancel it if I want to, but I'm going to make it a default. And the information from organizations like Effective Altruism will and does trickle down. Like this charity yes. is consistently pretty good. So if you don't want to think about yes. it too much, donate there. Yeah. So know? even if you don't go to full blown Effective Altruism, and personally I don't, I, <laughs> I, I give to some charities that are based on idiosyncratic concerns. Right. But at least now I'm sensitive to the question of how efficient a charity is. Yeah. So for instance, there's people who, I know people who refuse to donate to charities which have just about any overhead. And I've been convinced by people like Singer, that's, that's dumb. You want a charity to have some overhead because they have to see whether they're, they're working, they have to assess their own. Right, output. they have to fly places. They, they have, exactly, you know, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and there's all sorts of ideas on how to make the world a better place, including ideas like give pe money to people directly. And my answer to this, based on sort of how I'm constituting the argument I'm making, is almost everything, it's an empirical question. Yeah. But if it turned out that the best way to help people is to hand out $20 bills on the streets of a poor country, then then we should just, best way to do is grab a wad of $20 bills from our ATM and go to go to a, the country which needs it. Yeah, I'm very interested in this sort of guaranteed minimum income yes. thing. People, a lot of people are talking about this and then there are some local experiments yep. here and there that people are paying attention to. Yep. But and, I guess and, we don't have the data yet fully. Like, And even in the United States, I mean, this is a a horrible time to call for great subtle policy analysis. <laughs> right. but, but I think people have some good ideas, you know, including people like Paul Ryan, have some thoughtful, interesting ideas on how to alleviate poverty. Mm -hmm. And I think we should just try to assess them and try them out and so on. Be more empirical about it. Right, right. I mean, the need for rationality applies very much as well in the political realm. Yep. We need to be paying attention to what people are actually saying within and in spite of politics. Right? Yes. Yeah. So let's, shall we see what the next yeah. one is? All right, cool. This would be David Eagleman on uh -huh. mass shootings. Well, let's see what he has to say. When it comes to what to do about mass shootings, there's a variety of opinions. And I think what this represents is the variety that people have uh, on the inside. What I mean is people are very different. I'm talking about the decision makers now, not the mass shooters. People are very different on the inside. Who you are and what you believe about the world comes about as a confluence of your genetics and your environment. So the predispositions you come to the table with mixed with every experience you have from your family of origin to your culture, your neighborhood, your generation that you drop into. As a result, brains are all very different. So when it comes to what to do about a mass shooting, there's no surprise that you have completely different opinions. On the one hand, you have people who say, look, let's just get rid of all weapons. And on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who say, look, let's make sure that everybody's armed because it's impossible to get rid of all of the weapons. So let's do a mutually assured destruction approach. And, and these are all you know, valid in some way. I mean, it's understandable why different people have different opinions. One of the things that I follow as a neuroscientist whenever there's a mass shooting is the discussion that happens. People will often throw around words like, well, the guy's a psycho. 
Now, uh, you may know there's no such thing as a psycho. That's a, a meaningless term. What the commentator presumably means is either this person has a psychosis, something like schizophrenia, where they have a disorder of cognition, or they mean this person is a psychopath, which is not a disorder of cognition. Instead, psychopathy is about having no empathy towards other people, not caring at all about other people, seeing other people as objects to get around. They're also known as sociopaths. But these are completely different things. An understanding of these things in the public dialogue I think would be very important. Every time there's a mass shooting, there are all sorts of commentators that come out and say things like, well, I heard he had Asperger's, or I heard he had ADHD, or I heard that he wrote dark poetry, which is of course true of, of most young teenagers. So a better understanding of the vocabulary is something that I try to disseminate through my work in neuroscience and law. I'm a big David Eagleman fan, and I disagree with him in some regards, but he's always a, a smart and articulate commentator on things. Um, I didn't find this video particularly edifying. I think it was more of an introductory sort of thing. So his initial claim that, that well, we could explain the diversity of opinions um, because it's all a combination of genes and environment is in some sense a true observation. It's all a combination of genes and environment, but that sure. doesn't, but that's, that's sort of a banal statement that doesn't explain why we have a diversity of opinions. It felt like a cop-out to me yes. with respect to the question of what to do about mass shootings. Right. It, it's, there's all sorts of things we don't have a diversity of opinions about, <laughs> right. such as the fact that objects fall down if you release them, or hot fudge sundaes are good. But of course, our minds are also a combination of genes and environments, so you have to say, why is there a difference of opinion? And I think there's a difference of opinion because people have genuinely different views about how to deal with mass shootings. Because unlike, I mean, there's no difference of opinion on how you sit on a chair, right? right. There's, because it's pretty simple. Solving mass shootings is not simple, hence there's a difference. And there's also, of course, a politics of it, a politics right, involving guns, yeah. gun control. Yeah. I would even step back and ask, why are we asking that question about mass shootings? Well, because stopping mass shootings would be, would be great. But there's an illusion, which I discuss in my book, that mass shootings are of this extraordinary significance. But they're basically of extraordinary emotional significance. Right. I think it was Mother Jones did analysis of the proportion of Americans killed by mass shootings over the last many years. Mm. In terms of mass shootings amount to about 0.1% of homicides. If you change the definition of mass shootings, you could bring it up a little bit higher. But it's infinitesimal. While regular everyday shootings, like people shooting each other in Chicago, really rack up the numbers, they're the other 99.9%. .9 what That's the numbers right. mean is, um, if you were to snap your fingers and make a sort of never a mass shooting again, nobody would ever notice if they looked at the homicide numbers. Right. And, and I, I, I want to say, like, when I was reading your book, I, I made a note on this, and I was like, yes, but these mass shootings represent a somewhat sociologically, qualitatively different event in the life of the American experiment, hence we are attuned to them. But th that said, there's also a kind of racist and classist situation implicit in that because if we're looking at the decay of society and there are all of these people dying in Chicago all the time and that's a non-event somehow from the, the standpoint of the media. Right. And I want to be... Compared with Newtown. And I want to be, you know, <laughs> I, I, I have my intellectual views in this. Newtown was, uh, you know, I, I live in New Haven, Connecticut. Newtown was this extraordinary event. It was a terrible 
event, everybody I knew knew somebody who was somehow connected to it. My wife knew, knows somebody in the town. And, and, and I'm not doubting the emotional force, but I think when it comes to policy, if a president or David Eagleman stands up and says, we have to make it a top priority right. to stop mass shootings, no, we don't. Actually, that's not, that's not, our, big, that's right. not our big problem. It certainly affects us a lot, but I'll give an, I'll give an analogy. Muslims in America are unusually law-abiding, proportionally. They, they don't commit that many crimes. Right. And, but, of course, some murders are committed by Muslims. And if I was to say, this isn't a big problem, they don't tend to commit that many crimes proportionally. There's a non-issue here. Someone else could say, but it's of great moral significance. It's great. It strikes us as special. Right. I don't deny it strikes us as special. It strikes us as special, many of us as special, because we have a certain racist and ethnic biases right. that make these things stand out. So particularly when dealing with criminal justice issues, I think our emotional responses are very much conditioned to the groups we belong to, to ethnicity and so on. Right. I also just want to not let his comment about psychopathy uh, okay. go by. Right, right. He's correct. Psychopaths do test as low empathy. But there's no evidence for the claim that low empathy is at the root of their psychopathy and the cause of the psychopathy. Because it turns out that when you look at all of the factors that go into being a psychopath, their empathy level has like no predictive power mm. in their bad behavior. The same is true for us as well. There's been all these meta-analyses taking every study done looking at the relation between low empathy and aggression, sexual aggression, physical aggression, right. aggression, no connection at all. What makes a psychopath a psychopath is low self-control and meanness. Outside of the movies, it's not a psychopath don't think of other humans as humans. Okay. They just don't care that much about them. They kind of, some of them like to make other people suffer. They tend to be shallow, somewhat ugly personalities that grasp for things and want to and, and want what they want. So you're saying on average though they do score low on empathy That's but right. that there's a range within that like that some psychopaths are more empathic than others. That's right. And their low and scores on empathy it's not as if psychopaths have a specific empathy deficit. That's how I was often described. Mm -hmm. They have overall emotional deficit. They have shallow affect right. is the technical term. Right. They don't tend to feel that much about anything. And so what my, to put it in my language, I think part of the problem with psychopathy is just low self-control. There are people who, they're impulsive, they're thrill-seeking, and, they, and, and they, they can't hold back from bad behavior. But another thing is, I think they just don't care much about people. Mm -hmm. They're low compassion. Right, right, right. Okay, I think let's draw a line under that and check what, C, the, what C the last three. one is. Yeah. They're, getting, they're getting better. <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, hopefully this one will take us into some truly kooky, out-of-the-way territory. Let's see. You always save the best for last. <clears throat> I don't know. It's, it's not up to me. Um, this is Wesley Lowry on the importance of the free press. Okay. Good. Well, let's see. Yeah. All right. Take me out of my comfort zone. There we go. I think that we've seen an unprecedented assault on our media. Uh, we've seen an, a deep villainization of our free press. And in fact, a war on objectively true information. That when something is reported that someone does not like, you can just say it's not true, whether it is or not. You can try to undercut the messenger and talk about how, no, these are just biased reporters, don't listen to them. When in fact, often these are fair reporters who've worked very hard to get things right. That, that has real ramifications. I mean, we're, we're facing the prospect of living in a world that is post-truth 
where, where there are no objective truths, where you can tell me the sky is purple or the sky is green when in fact we're looking at it and we see that it's blue. That becomes very dangerous potentially for democracy, right? Because in, in a world in which the truth is unknowable, how do we make governing decisions? And then also how do we hold people accountable? How do we demand better of our elected officials if our elected officials do not have to deny, who do not have to acknowledge reality at any point in time, right? They can just tell us that no, they did not say the thing they said. No, this policy would not do the things we know it would do. I think that's particularly dangerous. I don't think that there's any coincidence in the fact that our press freedoms are one of the first things that our founders enshrined in our constitution. And I think that that's what we face now, is, is the potential of having our press so undermined uh, that it can no longer be a safeguard of our democracy. The word of the year, I guess, for the OED, like 2016, was post-truth, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm skeptical of these kinds of, like, I don't doubt the importance of a free press, but I'm, I'm skeptical of these kinds of claims that we're sliding into a post-truth reality. How do you view that argument? I'm skeptical too. So I, I agree with virtually everything he said. And I think these are important things he said and true things as well. Mm. Certainly the importance of objective reporting, respect for objective reporting, the fact that certainly politicians now seem entirely willing to say things which is blatantly false, you know, in the hopes that no one will ever care or catch them. Right. And certainly, you know, his point about how terrible it is when reporters are targeted, often personally, because people don't like what they're saying. Right. But on the other hand, two things. One thing is, I'm not really sure we're, we're post-truth or post-fact. I think people really are interested in getting it right. I think in the heat of an election season, often people exaggerate or they say they willingly say things which right. aren't true or they, or they give signaling their views in ways that show an indifference to the truth. But, right. but this happens, I think, in America every four years. Yeah. And, and, here's and where I don't I, think it's new either. Like no. if you go back to the founding of the nation like and read some of the newspapers that were the competing political parties when they first existed in America were writing, they were, you know, completely lurid and insane. Like, that's, ex that's exactly right. And, so, <laughs> like, and when, people, so when people say things like, oh, we've never been so uncivil to each other, right. you know, I, I think a history lesson is in order. <laughs> right. um, I mean, sometimes claims about exceptionality are true. We've never quite had a president-elect like Donald Trump. That's right. That, that, that no, matter, no matter what your political views <laughs> yeah. are, it's true. Um, I guess I feel like that, that I agree with a lot of what he say, he's saying. I think he's letting off the media a bit lightly because there is a critique of the media which, is, which I think is reasonable on both the left and the right. I'm going to make it more on the left, which right. is although their business is telling the truth and they often do a superb job of it, they also get to choose what to report. Right. what emphasis to put it on. They do, editors do, and so on. And this inevitably shows a tilt based on people's political views and their moral views. Um, school shootings, mass shootings are, for instance, tremendously important to front page news. Right. While what happens in other countries, even though many, many more people might die, is less important. It's understandable. But in the political season, I think there's a lot of room to be very critical of the media. Sure. I mean, and sure. this takes us into sort of just partisan. Sort of, yeah, yeah, We yeah, can yeah. turn this into political roundtable stuff. But I'm one of many people who think the immense focus on Hillary Clinton's emails and the FBI reports in Hillary Clinton's emails affected the course of the election and was an irrational decision, an unfair decision on the part of the media. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, and the complete inattention to the multiple security agencies that seem to have credible ed evidence of Russian tampering, 
that was relatively buried within the whole thing. You know, that's. Exactly. I mean, I, again, yeah. I don't want to get into a partisan political roundtable, but I don't think that's partisan. There's like you have 16 security agencies yes. or whatever. Like, and, and these are these, <laughs> like, and these are fair criticisms. Yeah. Not every criticism in media is saying, "Oh, you're lying," or "We don't like your truth." Right. A lot of it could be, "Why are you focusing on this rather than that?" Yeah. And again. No one's going to be happy. Every, right. Everybody has, a, has their own political and moral viewpoint, and no one's going to find a newspaper or media source that's directly aligned with theirs. But there are cases where a fair-minded person could say, there's not enough emphasis on this and way too much emphasis on that. Sure. And yeah, and that's clearly the case. What we're talking about here instead is this sort of, you know, on the one hand, the discrediting of whole branches yes. of the media, the liberal lying New York Times, yep, yep. et cetera, et cetera. And on the other hand, the proliferation of totally fake news yes. that leads to that dude showing up in that DC pizza parlor. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. You yes. Know? And I guess my question is, on the internet in America, can all these things sort of exist side by side and, and not upset the apple cart in terms of truth, the amount of truth on the whole that there is, or how seriously we take truth. That is, can we have these conspiracy theories and, and all of that out there, and are we okay still anyway, you know? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know either. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to deny that these are, in some ways, awful times. Um, <laughs> I, I think the concern about fake news is a good sign that we're concerned about it, right. that people are upset about it, they're outraged about it. People, for the most part, want the truth. They may well want the truth that flatters their preconceptions. Sure. They may want the truth that puts their favorite leaders in good lights and their enemies in bad lights. But people, people tend to want the truth. And, and so I think there, uh, there's quite a rebellion now against fake news and all sorts of s attempts to stop it. Right. I think we're going to end up fixing that problem, then a hundred other problems are going to emerge. But one of the advantages, we talked about social media before, is that in this crazy, messy world of social media, someone who's really interested in things can pretty, without much difficulty, get access to fairly reliable and good reporting. Right. You don't have to read Breitbart. You don't have to read various sites that exaggerate and, 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 and confuse. You, and you, people do a certain amount of crowdsourcing, even within yes. their own cultural bubbles, and saying, no, that's bullshit. That's I right. looked it up on Snopes, you know, et cetera. That's exactly right. Right? That's exactly right. Snopes is one of, <laughs> is one of, the, one of the great things of our century. I agree. This is something called, called Snopes that does what it does, and that um, whenever a crazy uncle of mine tells me something, I could just send him the link. And that's, that's hugely useful. I, I found it incredibly useful, although I will say that during this recent election cycle, you know, I had a friend who had some very conservative, ultra-conservative friends that he was arguing with all the time on Facebook, and more than once I heard Snopes discredited by that. You know, that is a false news source. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, ter <laughs> terrible times again. Indeed, indeed. Well, I hate to end on the note of terrible times, but I will say that it was a real pleasure talking to you, Paul Bloom, and that I think the ideas in your book against empathy have the potential at least to turn some of us toward better times. This was terrific. This was a great conversation. I hope we get a chance to do it again. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again, a Big Think podcast, our last for the year. It's been a crazy year, but I'm looking forward to a lot of things in 2017. I wanted to tap into whatever optimism, whatever big plans you guys might have for the new year. You can leave a voicemail for us at 
669-9076. I'd love to hear what some of your big plans, big ideas, big hopes are for 2017. Again, 349-669-9076. I'll try to gather some of the best of those for a future episode. My big plans for 2017, I don't wanna completely let the cat out of the bag, but I will say that I have a few big ideas for new podcasts and development. Let's just leave it there. Have a wonderful new year, and we'll see you next week.